This is ACM Bytecast, a podcast series from the Association for Computing Machinery, the world's largest educational and scientific computing society. We talk to researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice. They share their experiences, the lessons they've learned, and their own visions for the future of computing. I am your host, Rashmi Mohan. If you've been a student of computer science in the last 50 years, chances are you're very familiar and somewhat in awe of our next guest, an author, a teacher, a computer scientist, and a mentor. Donald Knuth wears many hats. Don, welcome to ACM Bytecast. Hi. I'd like to lead with a simple question that I ask all my guests. If you could please introduce yourself and talk about what you currently do, and also give us some insight into what drew you into this field of work. Okay, so I guess the main thing about me is that I'm 82 years old, and so I'm a bit older than a lot of the other people you'll be interviewing. But even so, I was pretty young when computers first came out. I saw my first computer in 1956 when I was 18 years old. And so although people think I'm an old-timer, really, there were lots of other people way older than me. Now, as as far as my, my career is concerned, I always wanted to be a teacher when I was in in first grade, I wanted to be a first grade teacher. When I was in second grade, I wanted to be a second grade teacher and so on. I finally got to college. I decided I'd want to be a college teacher. And so that's what I, that's what happened. And I guess I also enjoyed writing because when I was in seventh grade, our teacher was extremely good at teaching us about English grammar. We learned how to make diagrams out of sentences. And, and this was quite fascinating. And so by the time I got to high school, I found out that I had more training in grammar than most of the other kids in, in my classes. So I had took every opportunity to do some writing. I, I edited the, uh, the high school newspaper, for example. And then in college, I also did, well, I wrote computer manuals while I was an undergraduate. And I was editor of a magazine in, in college. So, so anyway, teaching and writing, that sort of, that sort of defines me. Amazing. And, you know, rightfully so. I think uh, we've all been beneficiaries of your writing and many of us who have been lucky have been beneficiaries of your teaching as well. But one question I do have is, so teaching and writing, I understand, and and a particular interest in writing leads to many different ways of writing. Why computer science? Why mathematics and computer science? When I was 18, I, I saw this computer through a window and in those days, it was it was a kind of a big thing, but I, I I got to open the door and and find out how it worked. And I was lucky. I was at Case Tech. It's now called Case Western Reserve, uh, but changed its name afterwards. So they had a very enlightened administration there. They allowed freshmen like me to touch the mainframe computers, and uh, most other universities. I think only maybe Case and Dartmouth and Carnegie were so foresighted. And so us youngsters were, were allowed to write software for the campus and, and learn all, all about the machine. So I fell in love with that machine. And in fact, I dedicated my book to it at, later on. And so at that time, I found out that there was, that I had somehow grown up with a peculiar kind of brain that the way my brain organized stuff, it seemed to resonate pretty well with, with computing machines. And so I would look at these instruction books that came from the manufacturer, and and it seemed to me those books were well were pretty stupid because it was easy to figure out how to how to solve the problems better than the way they were suggesting. And so I I decided maybe uh, computing was all, was also going to be for me. On the other hand, I had no idea that I'd ever be teaching about computing because there was no such thing. People didn't 
people use computers, but they didn't have any courses in colleges having to do with computers. So that came later, and, and I also enjoyed my math classes, and so I, I was a major in mathematics. And I, I began also as a professor of mathematics at Caltech for, for several years. You know, it's amazing that you bring mathematics up because I think, you know, recently I was talking to somebody else and they were saying, you know, in order to be really proficient as a computer scientist, you really need a very strong foundation in mathematics. I mean, technology today is is a field that's very welcoming. You know, most people can participate by learning how to program in like one or two languages and with little background and, you know, start to participate in the field itself. As we build like the next generation of computer scientists that are coming into this world, what do you think are the key skills that helped you be really proficient in this field? Would you attribute it to your background in mathematics or is it traits within yourself that you think helped you be as successful as you are? Well, thank you for saying I was successful anyway. Computers are used for so many things different you know, these days. So there can be people from many different backgrounds who will also be successful using computers in their, in their way. But for the way I do it, the thing that I'm particularly... Uh, seem to be cut out for is programming and there seems to be a difference between people who for whom programming comes naturally and people who who struggle with it you know they can do it if they have to but there's a it's something like teaching a dog how to how to walk on two legs you know a dog can learn how to do it but dog is much better at four legs well (laughs) you know there are some people who can they can write programs and they can they can do what they need to do but but then there there are these people that have this strange kind of brain i do that for which programming seems the most natural thing and you sort of resonate you're in sync with how to do it i found through my life that about one in every 50 people has this strange quirk that that they were born to be a great programmer and that number might might be changing in different cultures because kids are exposed to different things when they're young now but but certainly it's been constant for all all my experience. And so the thing I do best is communicate with the people in that 2% of the population who, who are good at programmers. I try to I try to be a mentor to them. Do you find that it's easy to identify or observe those traits within the people that you uh, you oh, teach? Oh, yeah, yeah. We we can sort of recognize each other immediately. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we tell different jokes, so we use different analogies, and we have high bandwidth conversations of a different kind than than with somebody who who doesn't who doesn't have this same mentality i was reading sans translations of sanskrit works from the 13th century and and some of those guys who were musicians in india you know i think that they would have been computer scientists if they were living today i know that music is also a very significant interest to you and i definitely want to talk about that in a little bit but continuing down the same conversation, Don, you're also referred to often as the leading expert on algorithms. Your book, The Art of Computer Programming, is considered a Bible for many computer scientists. How did you develop an interest in this particular field of computing? And you know, what did you do to hone your interest and aptitude? That's what computer programs are. It's, it's putting an algorithm into a concrete form. An algorithm is an abstract thing. And a program is is a way to put it into some language. It's like information is an abstract thing, and data is expressing the information in number. So an algorithm is this this idea of first you do this, then you do this, and then you then you decide whether to do whether to go to case one or case two. And this peculiar ability that programmers have is is for a way to see to see the problem as a whole, and also at the same time see it at the low low level. So you know that if in order to solve this overall problem, what you have to do is add one to this number in some part of the machine. 
and jumping levels in between uh, the low levels and the medium levels and the higher levels and the real high levels, going back and forth seamlessly without being aware. This is a skill that, that seems to be essential for a programmer. And is this something that you feel you iteratively sort of developed or have you seen develop in other people? Is that something that you, that, you, know, you can get better at? I'm not the right person to ask because I have the skill, so I have to talk to it, uh, to somebody who who didn't have it, and then a year later found that that she learned it. I mean, I'm not sure how teachable it is. Mm. Uh, and since there's a great need for more programmers in the world, it'd be nice if, if if we could teach everybody. But I do know things that that I've tried very hard to learn, and and I was unable to learn myself. And so I don't think it's just a matter of motivation and trying to learn. I think there, for example, I. I'm pretty good at algebra, but I'm not very good at geometry. And I've tried hard to develop skills at geometry and visualizing things better, but I'll never be anywhere near be able to do it the way my wife does or some of my students do. On the other hand, algebra, I don't know if I learned it as a skill or if it was something I did when I was 10 years old or, or something, but that's the way it is with me. So in other words, if somebody thinks they can teach anybody anything, then I would say, okay, come and teach me geometry. <laughs> Yeah. I mean that's pretty that's pretty fascinating. And and you know, I, I'd agree with you in, in there are certain things I think that can be learned and then there are many things that maybe are intuitively something that you develop as is a talent that you have that you can probably hone to a little bit extent. Yeah, well I mean people are different. Everybody has different profile of abilities, it seems to me. You know, another thing I I'm sure I'll never be it's is good at playing soccer, you know. And I'm I'm tall, but I was I was never good at basketball. I tried hard to but I did, you know, have a good student career as the manager and scorekeeper. Ah. <laughs> very, very valuable skills and definitely needed for the team. <laughs> okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So I did a little bit of background in terms of, you know, reading up about your career. And I know for a fact that you introduced literate programming into the world of computer science. And I'm just curious as to, it's considered par for the course now, but what is it that sparked that insight in you? Well, I told you that I like to write. And so I came to a point where I had written some software that people wanted. And there was a question, how do you, if you've got a big computer program, how do you communicate that to somebody else? And it turned out that while I was inspired by a report that I read from a man in Belgium, goodness, what was his name? But anyway, it's called Holon Programming. And he and he had an idea where the, the way to understand a complicated thing like a computer programmer, but also any complicated thing, is to is to realize that it's just a lot of simple things put together in simple ways. And when you do that, then you can make complicated things understandable. And so uh, once I, I realized that I could break down my programs in the same way, then I could I could be a, simultaneously a teacher and a programmer. So ever since then, which was 40 years ago now, when I'm writing a program, I'm also thinking of myself as a teacher. I'm imagining that I'm at a blackboard teaching a student what, what this program is supposed to do instead of just thinking of myself as, as typing in something that for the computer. The program that I that I write then is actually uh, human-oriented, and I can come back to it a year later, and I know exactly what I was thinking about when I was writing the program. And so this turned out to be uh, kind of the most thing for me. Now, I still write on the average of five programs a week. They aren't usually very very long, but, but let me see. that Last Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I, I wrote a program that's about 900 lines of code, and it's I'm quite happy with it and found another bug in it this morning, but it seems to be working pretty well. That's wonderful. What problem are you trying to solve? Well, that problem was to convert a 
CSP into dialect was the name of the program that you take a constraint satisfaction problem and, and convert it to a exact cover problem that and I have I have very good solvers for exact cover problems and and so I wanted to try out algorithms for constraint satisfaction by translating that into this DLX language and then I can watch how it's solved in the DLX language so it was it was a kind of a translator from one language to another that's amazing that you're so fascinated by programming and still writing programs. Let me interrupt. I did want to get in a plug for, for my latest book. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, because DLX, well, the DL stands for Dancing Links. And last December, I published a little paperback, well, it's 400 pages, which had Dancing Links in a title. And I'm really happy with it. This is where this, this exact cover and a lot of other things associated with it are sort of explained for the first time. I've been working on it for, for years, but this is this is kind of the this is kind of where I finally wrote it up and, and tried to present it to the world, and I hope everybody's going to love it as much as I did. If you take the book and and you turn to almost any page, you're going to you're going to find a, I think a puzzle that you're going to enjoy solving because that book is just loaded with puzzles. It turns out that the best way to uh, express the kind of algorithms that are in that book seem to be to explain them in terms of puzzles, and so I've got. Many of the world's most famous puzzles explained there in, in different ways than they've been done before. And so I, the best I can say is it was so much fun writing this book because I sort of felt all my life I've been preparing. I always enjoy you know, solving puzzles. When do you anticipate that it'll be out? It sounds fascinating. No, it came out in December. Okay, great. It's actually in second printing already. Yeah. If everybody buys a copy, then we'll go to the third <laughs> printing because I got, I, I got a few more corrections from readers to... Terrific. I hope I hope we were able to help you and aid you along that journey. <laughs> you know, I'm delighted to have, to have people reading it, but I didn't write it in order to make money. I wrote it because I thought the ideas were really cool. So, I mean, when you talk about writing, I read up another little anecdote about you, which, which led to another story that I was very fascinated by, which is when your first book got published and you actually saw a digital copy of it, you were unhappy with how it was represented in digital form, and that led you to creating text. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that journey. I mean, starting to see a recurring pattern, you see something that's not working well and you launch into that problem and try and solve it yourself. Well, the only reason that I that I decided to work on tech was because I also learned at the same time that the printing industry had gone through a revolution where they went away from metallurgy and printing based on hot lead or on optical or camera work, but it, the new machines were, were digital. They were just... They were just bits, zeros and ones. So every page, if you see in a book, you put a zero where it's supposed to be blank and you put a one where they're supposed to be ink. And so so printing had converted from something that I didn't understand at all to zeros and ones, which I you know I figure I understand as well as anybody. So so if all it was needed in order to get my book looking nice again was to, to be able to to produce patterns of zeros and ones, then I couldn't wait, I couldn't even sleep at night. I, you know, it was too exciting to, to to try to solve the problem and make make it so that I could enjoy reading that, reading my books again. I learned about the digital printing. It was uh, in the spring of 1977. I was chair of a committee at Stanford that was trying to revise the reading list for, this, for our graduate students when they take the comprehensive exam. And one of the books suggested to add to the reading list was a new book by Pat Winston called Artificial Intelligence, and they showed us the proof copies of it, which had been printed on a new machine in Southern California. And I looked at the proofs, and 
and they looked like a real book. But then I found then I found that this machine was actually a purely digital machine, and I didn't believe it because I had seen poor approximations to type on computers, but they looked awful. But the this book, the proofs for Pat Mason's book, uh, were were terrific. And so a week later, I was in Southern California looking at the machine. That's quite a story. I want to switch gears to your teaching career. I know you have a particular interest in working with students. I mean, obviously, you've had a very long and successful teaching career. What would you say was your defining moment? You said that you, you know, in first grade, you wanted to be a first grade teacher. What was it about that that whole process of, of being a teacher that was so interesting to you? I guess when I learned something cool, I like to pass it on to somebody else. And, and it's especially nice when you see that you have actually succeeded. In other words, the light comes into somebody's eyes and they have now experienced something because you were able to help them learn it. So that's the thrill, really. I agree with you. I mean, I think even as, you know, a lot of times when I come from an engineering management type of role, and, and I feel that way as well, when you are able to sort of help people uncover career aspirations and, and see them success, move along that journey, it's a very rewarding experience. Whatever your, your career is, you get satisfaction when you see that it's actually paying off you know, and, and making an effect on people rather than just bringing in money. Yeah, absolutely. And have you spent, do you spend a lot of time also mentoring young computer scientists outside of your classes, Don? Well, I've been retired for 30 years, but but even so, I, I go into school four days a week and I, you know, I have lunch with the students. And I work one-on-one with a lot of students before I retired, of course. More lately, I'm, you know, I'm just working with the people I meet. And then, well, of course, I give, I give public lectures and very traditions around Stanford where every December I give the annual Christmas lecture. That's for 25 years now. And usually, I mean, what, what is the area of, of interest that you pick? So it's about the coolest thing I learned that year that I th- thought more people ought to know about. And I tried to make it cover in important technical material, but without going over the heads of, of, of too many people. And Stanford streams these lectures now online and, and they're recorded. They've got not only these 25, but but more than 100 other lectures that I've given you know, over the years. It's all available through Stanford's uh, website. They're on YouTube. Would you care to share what you spoke about this past Christmas? Dancing Links. Ah. That was the, the book that came up. Yeah, I'm sure our um, listeners would definitely go in and look. We'll, we'll add the details into the show notes so they can go and look that up. I have a question when we're talking about mentorship, et cetera, especially in, you know, as, as a teacher, I think it is a natural extension because students sort of look to you for advice and you have office hours, you spend time with students. In industry, we find that the mentorship, the journey is a little bit broken. How do you think we could inspire more senior folks or folks who have had a lot of experience to actually pass that, in, you know, that knowledge and that experience on to more junior? How do we sort of make that journey of mentorship more formal or more effective? Depends on how how many people you're trying to reach, of course, but right now we're getting advances in technology that'll make it possible to reach more people. Still, the, the one-on-one is where you're able to work. Instead of me preaching at somebody else, much better if I can watch how they do it and then I can Instead of telling them what they should have done, I'll say, and why did you do that? Or So in my classes, it's become trendy now for people to have what they call the inverted classroom where the, where the students are doing most of the talking. But that's the way I always always ran my classes at Stanford. I, I was inspired by George Polio, who 
who put out a great video, or, or well, of course, it was on film in those days. But in, in the sixties, he had a little example of a, of a Stanford class that he had taught, and the title of it was "Let Us Teach Guessing." And so he's saying, ask the students to guess instead of lecturing at them, state a problem and then ask ask them to guess what to, what to do next. And this way, that makes them more interested in it, and then you can, then you can go on and continue to have them learn by their own ideas rather than absorbing others. So, so that's the way I ran my class at Stanford. And, and we had teaching assistants taking notes of it so that what came out was then written up and, and, and came out as reports. And that was eventually published as a book called Concrete Mathematics. In your own mentoring, suppose you have 50 people, but you somehow randomly designate five people, you know, everybody who's sitting in the back row or uh, everybody who's wearing glasses or wearing a something yellow or whatever it is, but have, have some rule to pick out five people and then tell them not to be nervous. If they make mistakes, so will everybody else. And they're just, they're just helping to focus the conversation. And then, and then you can, you can work that way improv rather than, rather than with a canned lecture, because the, really people learn more from making mistakes than from memorizing. I think that's very sound advice, especially the random matching of mentor to mentees and the ability to sort of mm -hmm. provide a, an open-ended problem that people then, you know, sort of solve together and make mistakes, but learn through that process. Um, I think that's great advice. Yeah, and there's lots of different ways to solve any problem. And to also just learning the, the variety is, is wonderful. But learning how to recover from, from error. I remember what one time particularly, I was working with the class, and you know, we were trying to solve a certain problem. It turned out the that no, they came up with the wrong answer. But all of a sudden, I, I had a flash of insight. And they say, oh, hey, you can see that's not the right answer, but can you figure out another problem for which this is the answer? And so it turned out that that was, that was one of the most successful days of teaching I ever had was when we, we went down a completely different road because we had an answer. We were trying to find the problem instead of a problem trying to find the answer. I'm not sure if, if the students enjoyed it as much as I did, but anyway, that's the way I, I, I like mentoring. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a wonderful, a very inspiring and, uh, and positive story. I'd like to go back to your own interest, though, which is in music. You mentioned that briefly earlier. Do you spend a lot of time playing music or listening to music? So that's my main, main avocation is enjoying music. And uh, that, again, was something that started when I was very young. My my father was not only a teacher, he was also, he also taught music and you know, I learned to read music when I was young, and then uh, through high school, I I played tuba in the marching band. I played saxophone in the symphonic band. I played piano to accompany the choir. During the '60s, I got inspired by pipe organs because uh, the organist at the church where I was going suddenly took ill, and I had taken a one year of how to play the pipe organ when I was 12 years old, and so I got this phone call on Saturday saying I. Uh, Don, can you play the organ tomorrow morning? Our organist is going to be down for six months with a detached retina. And in those days, the only way to cure that was for him to lie still for six months. And so uh, I got uh, back to playing the organ regularly, and I, and I fell in love with the music that had been written for it. At that time, I was in Pasadena, California, where some of the best organists in America happened to be located because of mentoring. There was a man named Clarence Mater in the 1920s who had been an extremely good teacher. And so a lot, a lot of his students were 
in the Pasadena area at that time. So I, I got very interested in music for the pipe organ, and later I got a pipe organ for the music room in my own house, in fact. And so um, that was a long, you know, long-time love of mine. I also had a rare idea that there ought to be a, a certain kind of a piece written for a pipe organ, but I knew that it would take a long time to, to bring it off. But for 50 years, I, I was sort of thinking about writing such a piece. And then finally, it was seven years ago, I decided, hey, Don, you're getting pretty old. You're 75 years old. Now, if you're ever going to finish that piece, you better get to work on it. So I spent five years from age 75 to age 80. On a lot of weekends, I went and worked on writing this piece, which is called Fantasia Apocalyptica. And and it's a different kind of a sound. And so and so it's experimental, and some people will probably hate it, but I personally am glad to say that I think it's a it's something that I am very glad that that I was able to bring off. And so uh, the happiest day of my life was on my 80th birthday when we had the the world premiere of this piece. It lasts an hour and a half, but it actually breaks down into um, to 22 parts that are each pretty pretty short, and you can watch those one at a time on YouTube if you're interested. So. The name is Fantasia Apocalyptica, and it's been performed in its entirety now. We had three performances. The first one was in Sweden. The second one was in Canada. The third one was in Czechia. And now we're having the uh, the American premiere in October of this year. Well, congratulations. That's a tremendous achievement. And definitely, I will definitely <laughs> go back and listen to it, as well as share the link with our listeners. I'm sure a lot of people will be very interested. Thank you for sharing. By the way, it's not just it's not just organ, but it's also it's multimedia. So there's also three video tracks that go with it. So, so it's been captured very very beautifully. These performances, I was quite thrilled that Google actually sent a team of, of four people up to Sweden to record the world premiere with the, you know the world best state of the art 360 projectors, and we and we also had. Surround sound, uh, special audio. So we got all the, we got a digital recording of that performance that is, uh, that was state of the art at the time. And all the bits are now in Stanford archives waiting for some graduate student to uh, put them together and make a beautiful VR experience out of it. Thank you so much for sharing that, Don. I mean, that's an incredible, incredible story. And I look (laughs) forward to listening to the piece. I think we have time for our last question. So for our final bite, I know you prefer not to predict the future, as you say, but I would love to know what is it that you're most excited about now, like in the immediate? What is it that is keeping you super excited right now? Oh, well, I'm continuing to write the art of computer programming. It's something I started in 1962, and uh, I'm still uh, having great fun writing new copy. I mean, the, the reason I found a bug in that program this morning is because I because I finished another page of the art of computer programming, and and as I was writing that page, I had to check it out and found this book. So, as I said, the the art of computer programming is was written for the two percent of the world who are are resonating with with computer programming. I'm happy when I see their eyes light up, and the page I wrote this morning, I think, is actually going to be understood by even three or four percent. Sometimes, like, there's no way for me to to make something extremely simple. But I make it as simple as I can, and I could have made it a lot harder. Don, it's been an absolute honor to be a part of this conversation. We look forward to reading your new book. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us at ACM Bytecast. It's been a pleasure for me. Thanks so much, Mark Rashmi. 
ACM Bytecast is a production of the Association for Computing Machinery's Practitioners Board. To learn more about ACM and its activities, visit acm.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please visit our website at learning.acm.org slash bytecast. That's learning.acm.org slash b-y-t-e-c-a-s-t.